Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, and we're going to do it just a little bit different. Um, We are excited to just get the show rolling immediately with our guest, the author of the brand-new book, Fight, Mr. John Delavolpe. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, David. I really appreciate it. Yes. Well, um, just, uh, I mean, we posted a pretty good bio on the site, but I want our listeners to know all they can about your political background, so let's start there. Okay. Well, uh, thanks. So, so fight is a is a culmination of uh, of a couple of decades, 21 years, of my work at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics, where I've been fortunate to be the polling director there, where which means that every semester now, so going well over 40 semesters, I work with a few dozen undergraduates, and we conduct surveys and focus groups and other kinds of research on young Americans. We were fortunate to start this before 9-11 in 2000 when the oldest millennial voted for the first time, and we have continued it since. So now we have tracked the attitudes and values of the millennial generation, essentially people in their late 20s to 40, and now we're, we're focusing on the emerging Gen Z, uh, which roughly speaking is the 70 million Americans between 10 or 11 years old into the mid-20s. And that's really kind of the focus of this book, Fight. Um, it's worth perhaps noting for your audience that I took a leave of absence from, uh, from Harvard during uh, the summer and fall of 2020 to advise the Biden campaign, where I conducted polls and uh, advised on strategic communications on issues related to the youth vote. Yes, well, I'm quite interested in this age group since both of my children – uh, fall squarely into it. I guess I'll, maybe the older end, uh, based on what you just said. Um, so I guess I've got two um, samples um, th- that I've raised, if you will. Um, well, it kinda, you kind of gave me an um, insight into kind of why you wrote the book. Uh, so I'm going to pass it immediately over to Tim, but I do have some questions, but I want to get Tim and Catherine a chance to ask questions before I go further. So I'll pass it to Tim. Great. Thank you, sir, for being on with us tonight. One thing I noticed you said in your book, that Generation Z is impatient. They want things done immediately. And we both know, unfortunately, that government doesn't exactly always work that way. So, number one, do they expect to get all their answers from the government? And number two, why is this particular generation so impatient. Uh, can I 
uh, thanks, Tim. Uh, great questions. And uh, I'm going to answer number two first, if that's okay. Okay. Uh, I think, I think right. you know, I think they're, you know, they're impatient like so many, so many of us today. You know, this is a generation, you know, uh, uh, born and, and raised in the era of uh, Siri and, and Alexa and DoorDash and Uber. They're used to getting instant results you know, uh, on their phone and, and solving problems relatively, you know, like little inconveniences pretty, pretty quickly. Um, of course, they are also pragmatic and understand that government doesn't move that quickly, which I think is what is so special about this generation, because unlike other generations, they are not only using their influence to, uh, to fight for, you know, justice and democracy, by by voting at record numbers, which they do, but by also choosing how to spend their time and how to spend the money. In other words, influencing both the public sector through voting and political engagement, but also influencing the private sector through um, the kinds of uh, brands that they're loyal to and, mm-hmm. and uh, the kinds of uh, companies that they choose to work for. Mm-hmm. Zoomers... Many of them were born at the time of 9-11. Some recall the Great Recession. Most all of them have watched the rise of Donald Trump. Some have even voted against him or maybe for him. And and they also saw the upheaval that defined uh, his presidency. They have witnessed and experienced uh, much that has come with the pandemic. I would think that Generation Z would be a pessimistic group. Are they? Did you find them to be that way? Well, it's compli- I think it's complicated. I think, you know, you're right. This generation, I think, has, has came of age at uh, a time of tremendous angst and, and tor- turmoil. I'm not sure if there's ever been a, a period of time as as, uh, as 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 uh, you know, as as difficult to to raise a child as this period of time in at least seventy five years, and and what I think this means is that they've never seen they've never seen America come together. They've never they don't remember what it was like after you know when we came together after nine eleven or after other similar either tragedies or or victories kind of in the U.S. So what that means is that they are, as I said, I think they are pragmatic. They are angry. They are anxious. But there is, I think, the sense of underlying hope, although sometimes it's hard to find, that they're on the right path and that their generation is fighting for the right things. I think, honestly, like the optimism that comes in this book is – a lot of that is probably driven by me having the context, you know, to, to see what they may not see because they're in the fight and the struggle every single day. I think they're more optimistic mm-hmm. today perhaps than they were a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's certainly guarded optimism. I think, you know, I might be probably more optimistic about the longer-term future than they may even be, you know, having that context. Mm-hmm. Now, now you, you well documented it, of course, and it's been well documented by others about their 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 huge opposition to Donald Trump and his yeah. presidency, what he stood for. Twenty twenty produced the largest group 
of young voters ever in a presidential election. Was Donald Trump being on the scene the main reason for that? Well, I think that was a, an important reason. Of course, she was also you know, on the ballot in 2016, and we didn't see similar support. But uh-huh. what, what we did see is, as you noted, uh, the largest turnout of young Americans in 2020 than we've ever seen before including when Obama mm-hmm. ran, you know, in 2008. So, so that was mm-hmm. significant, and it followed 2018's midterms. So you're right. We had, you know, Trump being a factor, I think, drove enthusiasm for voting um, in 18 and 20. And I had begun to notice this change of attitude in 2017 after, after Trump's election, and, and folks could see, you know, uh, you know, uh, kind of the kind of walls being talked about going up on the southern border, and us being pulled out of the Paris Accords, and and you know Steve Bannon on the on the National Security Council, the rise of of uh, the alt right and hate speech, et cetera. They could see those things for themselves while he was president. They could see the tangible difference that voting or not voting could make, and he was certainly a driver, I think, of uh, a participation. I would also say that, you know, Joe Biden, from the earliest days of his candidacy, understood that for him to be a successful candidate and successful president, he needed to essentially kind of expand the electorate and, 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 and made significant efforts to kind of connect with, connect his values to the values of, of, of Gen Z and, uh, and younger millennials. And uh, he performed incredibly well um he 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 received 60 percent of the youth votes second only to 2008's obama so i think it's a combination Mm -hmm. of trump angering people motivating people but also biden taking this vote seriously trusting them empowering them and then ultimately asking them to come out and vote of which they did especially Mm -hmm. right thinking about the the difficulties of voting you know generally as a young person specifically during the pandemic it was quite a feat Mm-hmm. Now, my grandchildren are all members of this group, Generation Z, all six. My sons are millennials. Mm-hmm. What is the chief difference in the outlook of those two groups? Well, you know, you know, Tim, the outlook may not be so different in terms of uh-huh. their values and the way in which they're just approaching politics. Um, you know, both you know, millennials were 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 the ones who essentially I, I talk about in the book kind of brought us Obama back all the way back dating back to 2007. You know, in in Iowa, 55 percent of young people voted for him in Iowa, only 10 percent for Hillary Clinton, 14 percent for John Edwards. So if it wasn't millennials in Iowa for Barack Obama, he I don't think would have really been president. He lost the vote of everybody over the age of 30. So. Mm-hmm. They have a the sense of kind of progressive values that Gen Z has has kind of adopted and, and run with. I think there may be a few points more progressive, but generally they hold the same values. What I think is unique, in my opinion, is is the urgency of Gen Z, you know, and and um, their degree to which they have responded, frankly, to the times. It, you know, in, in, in inspired so many other members of their own generation, older people, into areas of activism. And I, and I, and I walk through what I think are 
you know, uh, four or five of the most significant events that have shaped their values, the first of which was really a millennial-led movement, you know, Occupy Wall Street. Gen Zers mm-hmm. were, were, yeah. were pretty young. This was 10 years ago. So this was a mm-hmm. movement that I think was kind of birthed by older people, even the silent generation, but really it was mm-hmm. millennials who, um, who, who, who took control of that. And at that point, they made economic inequality just a central point, focus of how their generation and now Gen Zers uh, kind of relate to politics. That was certainly kind of one very significant moment. We talked about the effect of Trump, and I think the other three other moments are the uh, what March for Our Lives became after a handful of, of uh, Parkland students organized after the horrific shootings in 2018 was was a uh, was a significant driver as long, as well as not only that but they also inspired Greta Thunberg to do a similar campaign in her country of Sweden which expanded to around the world on climate and then I think mm-hmm. the fifth before covid the fifth one was was certainly the the, the black lives matter and the George Floyd protests again started by a 17 year old Darnella Frazier mm-hmm. without her and the bravery she exhibited using her cell phone that day for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we know who George Floyd's name is. There were 14 people killed by Minnesota police the year before, 13 before that. Mm-hmm. And we're not familiar mm-hmm. with your names. Uh, one final question before I turn it over to Catherine. You listed uh, many of the issues that are important um, to Generation Zers. And right at your list, you put income inequality. Mm-hmm. Why are they so passionate about that particular issue? Well, I, I think for a couple of reasons, the first of which is, you know, when we had the, the Great Recession of, uh, of, 2000, of you know, 2008, what we found was that 80% of Americans lost 20% of their net wealth. Millions mm-hmm. of young pe- millions of young people lost their homes along with their parents, and um, and many have never quite recovered from that, both financially as well as um, uh, through their through their mental health. There's a significant um, degree to there's a significant degree of uh, of uh, mental health and stressors concerns related to uh, children who are influenced by that period of time. Well, that's one. And then I also think, you know, the degree to which it takes, they question, they question capitalism, frankly, not capitalism generally, but the way in which it's practiced. And, and they tell me that they, it feels like they need to, it's not sufficient just to kind of work hard and create opportunity that they feel like, you know, they should have access to, the same kinds of opportunities that the parents and the grandparents had, you know, um, mm-hmm. as long as they work hard and willing to willing to work for it. For example, in the book I talk about if you're a child of the 60s, 70s, or, or even the early 80s, you could work a minimum wage job for a summer and afford a year of tuition at one of, the, one, of the, one of the best colleges and universities in America, the average price you could pay for with 13 weeks' worth of minimum wage work. Obviously, you can't do that today. 
and it puts mm-hmm. young people behind economically, and, and some economists believe they'll never be able to kind of catch up. So I think they see the, the, the significant gaps. Obviously, Bernie Sanders is someone who's able to give real voice to that, but um, mm-hmm. they're concerned not just about their own financial health, but also the financial health of other people. You know, uh, I think the last thing I'll say is when I talk to young people in a focus group or a town meeting, we do an introduction, I ask them if they work, you know, what kind of work they do. And most of the time I hear one, two, three different jobs, you know, a side hustle, driving Uber or doing something just to try to try to make ends meet. So I think a lot of the, the uh, stress um, uh, that we all feel uh, is certainly kind of felt by, by younger Americans as well financially. Well, I thank you for that, sir. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hi. Good evening. Thank you so much for being with us. This is very exciting to me, um, having having watched uh, youth interest in politics sort of diminish over time. It's very exciting to see it uh, rejuvenate. My question is about um, state and local politics and whether – this interest in, um, you know, participating and engaging in politics translates down to state politics and local politics because I think most of us recognize that um, that's where it sort of starts and where a lot of our daily, um, you know, the daily... Uh, things that affect us really happen at the state and local level. So are these um, are these are these I don't want to say kids. <laughs> are these young people interested in local and state politics as well, or is, are they really mainly focused on presidential and congressional politics? I think it's it's an important question, and I, and I think what I would say to that is it depends. We cannot take them for granted, and what I mean by that is when 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 they are a focus of of a, of of a, of a of a campaign you know they're they're targeted they're listened to they're respected they're kind of, they're asked to organize and they're asked for their input you know good things happen we saw that on the Biden campaign in the summer and fall of 2020 surprising to me at the time young people were not particularly influ- uh, engaged in the in the democratic primary of 2020 not nearly as much as I thought they would be. They weren't really kind of a focal point for most campaigns. Of course, Bernie's was, and and Pete Buttigieg made them a focal point um, for the you know while he was engaged in the first uh, handful of states. But largely, they were not a significant focus. In the Virginia governor's race, again, they weren't a significant focal point, frankly, of the McAuliffe campaign, which their politics would align with his, and their turnout. You know, it was not the outlier that the presidential turnout was uh, the year before in Virginia. It, I think it probably kept pace. It might have been increased. I don't. It, it was more or less, I think, in line with the last two gubernatorial elections when millennials were voting. So, the lesson is that we have the most, the largest, most diverse, most educated uh, electorate uh, of young people that we've ever had, but. Their, and their values align pretty neatly with most Democratic elected officials. But 
that you still need to engage them. You cannot take them for granted. When we do engage them, big things can happen, but only if you make them a priority. Yeah, you know, this is one of those chicken and egg things, I think. Um, I think a lot of um, – I'm not, I'm not endorsing this, but I think a lot of um, candidates, when they're running, they look at um, – at election data and they see, oh, well, people over 50 tend to vote. People under 40 tend not to vote. So I'm going to focus my energy on the people that vote. Whereas, you know, if they focus their energy on both, which is hard and expensive, they might see a better return. So I think it, um, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how this, you know, looks going forward. Um, because, Honestly, especially for young people, I think that, you know, daily quality of life things, you know, like minimum wage and health care and um, those things really do happen at the state level, a lot of them. And it's it, where we build our bench, where we build our bench for um, uh, federal candidates and ultimately presidential candidates. So it's very interesting to me to see. It'll be interesting to see how it all flushes out. But I'm so grateful so. for yeah. for the um, for the data that you've provided and for the for the um, narrative because it's really important for us to focus on young people because you know they they have their, our future in our in their hands and we need to make sure they're engaged. And we need to mentor them, and we need to take them seriously and to listen, right? Um, yeah, and, exactly. Um, especially, especially now, I actually think, Catherine, with the, with the billions of dollars in the American Rescue Plan, you know, a lot of those dollars are going to be spent, right, in your hometown, in my hometown. Um, so, like, engaging in, in school committee races and running for school committee. I, I am so thankful that one of my students from Harvard is, um, I think, probably the youngest elected uh, official in his in his hometown, he's a city council here in Citywide, first Asian American ever to win city uh, run Citywide. Um, so, I think again they're not sitting back to wait to solve the problems of uh, of older generations. So many of them are sacrificing their time now to engage, which I think is brilliant. Yes, I'm so grateful for that. Well, I'm going to pass it back to David for some final questions. Thank you so much for taking time on a Sunday night to talk with Thank us. You. We really appreciate it. Of course. Yes. Well, well, John, I noticed on uh, maybe it was on your book jacket. Definitely on some of the online, um, you know, snippets of other authors that had uh, read your book. That uh, Charlotte Alter, who wrote um, the book about millennials and politics, the ones I've been waiting for, she, you know, reviewed the book very positively. And one thing when I listened to her book, she talked about the difference between um, millennials that were progressive and millennials that were conservative and, and, and noted examples of each. Mm-hmm. Tell, us, t- tell us about how are Generation Z conservative and uh, progressive uh, generation voting members, how are they different? Well, uh, great question. A couple, different, a couple different ways to think about this, David. Uh, when, we think about, when we think about younger Republicans – Clearly, not as many uh, of them as there are younger Democrats. Younger Republicans, even even that group, largely is, I would argue, more progressive than their Republican parents and grandparents. 
for example, I talk about this on issues related to the need to uh, reform uh, aspects of capitalism, on issues uh, related to race relations in this country. Issues like that, we find, broadly speaking, that younger Republicans think more like younger Democrats and independents than older Republicans. So you have an overall, the entire generation is becoming more uh, progressive. That's kind of one thing. When we really dig into the younger Republican Party, I think it can, uh, which, is a, which is about a quarter or so of this generation, you know, 25, maybe 28% or so, would call themselves Republican. And uh, about half of that group, maybe 12, maybe 15% or so, would be kind of aligned with a, a lot of what I, the, the, the Trump wing of the Democratic Party believes, you know, that the election of 2020, you know, uh, you know uh, was, was not legitimate and, and Donald Trump really was, a, you know, uh, the, the, the person who, who, who actually won the election was stolen from him, those sorts of things. So you basically have half of all those Republicans, again, 10, 12, 15 percent or so, who tend to, you know, align with a MAGA Trump bucket compared to the other ones, which are the more you would call come mainline or mainstream Republicans who are, you know, a few points more progressive um, on those uh, economic and justice-related issues than their parents and grandparents. Yes. Well, um, I'll tell you what, um, you have been so gracious with your time tonight. Before you leave, I want folks to be able to know where they can buy the book, and if they want to follow you on social media or the work of the Harvard Kennedy School uh, Institute of Politics and Polling, I mean, anything they can you know, find out more about your work, just share it now. Great, yeah, because everything is available online. So fight – the book, there are a lot of books called Fight. So this book is called Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. It is now available everywhere. So if you're an Amazon person, it's on Amazon. If you're a local bookstore person, get it at your local bookstore. My local bookstore is kind enough to, 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 uh, to send out, you know, sign copies, personalized copies uh, at Concord Bookshop in Concord, Massachusetts. Contact them on their webpage. We'll do that. Um, my Twitter handle is just my last name, Della Volpe, D-E-L-L-A-V-O-L-P-E. I'm also on Facebook at John Della Volpe. And all of the work for 21 years, all of our research is available online at the um, Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics website. So it's the Harvard IOP, and you can follow that on Twitter, and you can see all the data uh, online there as well. Um, so. I, uh, I look forward to to hopefully continuing to to do this for, for for many years and hopefully finding more opportunities like this, you know, to kind of just help give voice to this very important generation. Excellent, Wati. Well, what we're sure once you get off this uh, book tour and you continue to do great research, you're going to have interesting information, and we might be wanting to call on you if you were so willing in the future. You know where to find me. I hope so. Excellent. Well, thank you, sir, for sharing that insight with us. Thank Thanks you so sir. much. For Thanks me so much. Thank Take you. Care. All right, that was John Della De Volpe, uh, author of "Fight: How Generation Is Challenging and Channeling Their 
passion and fear to save America. Um, and he is right. When I look up Fight, there is more than one book called Fight, uh, even some political books. So definitely put in Ch- uh, Generation Z in the title, and that should uh, get him there. So um, excellent to have him. And so let's now change gears and talk about one of our topics that we just had planned, and, and that would be um, kind of voting and access to voting. There were two things that happened in Georgia, although one has been happening other places. But let's start with the voter registration machines. Um, some good news coming out of Georgia government, um, you know, with, with of access to voting. Um, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger had you know, talked about how the long lines and, and mainly affected the metro Atlanta area and probably, honestly, a lot of Democratic precincts that uh, voting, you know, takes too long to vote. And if they improve the voting um, registration machines, they could, you know, somehow, I guess, get the names read faster. I don't understand all the technical inner workings. That may be why I teach school all day and don't work in the elections office. Um, But, uh, Catherine or Tim, if you have more insight about how it will speed the process, I would love to know more. And then we can go from there. Um, Catherine, any insight on, on exactly how this is supposed to help? I'm not sure. I think it. I think it has to do with the um, machine that um, looks up your registration. Now, I've never had any delays in that, but I guess there must be delays in other places. Um, it is an extra step. I don't know how you avoid that step of. Cons- of confirmation of voter registration and how that speeds up. But, but apparently it's, it's an important, it, it, at least to someone, it, they think that that's an important uh, place to speed it up. Is it a delay for you, Tim? Uh, no, um, not. Uh, I, I've been voting, uh, early voting for a long time. And uh, so it's, it's about the same amount of time each time I do that. But even in a small county like this, in our biggest boxes, we have discovered that there will sometimes be lines where basically they used not to exist. And it's not because that many more people are voting. It's just because the process had slowed down, especially with the uh, system that we had in place. Now, this one is called the G-A-R-B-I-S. It's the Georgia Registered Voter Information System, a cost to the taxpayer, well, a cost of $3.5 million out of their budget, their existing budget. And the claim is that this system will make, you know, waiting times in voting lines much shorter. Apparently, the, the, the equipment's just updated more streamlined, it's uh, easier, more user-friendly for poll workers who were just under an intense amount of stress with all that that, that was hitting them. Um, and they're going to launch it in March and give it a run before the primary in May when it's gonna when it's gonna go live. Uh, we'll we'll be we'll be under that, so we'll know quickly enough. Um, because we're expecting a pretty good turnout in this state because of some of the races that we have. Uh, so we'll know pretty quick. What do you hear, David? Yeah, I, and this is what's so sad about everything is, 
typically everything we've talked about, whether or not um, it was a, a progressive Democrat, a conservative Republican, an incumbent, a challenger, no, no matter or somebody was leaving office, no matter what, this would just be a no-brainer. Let's make things faster for the people. But uh, we have to think about the, you know, well, what's the political implications of this? Which it shouldn't be that way. It should just be let's everybody help, ex, you know, ex- exercise their right to vote quickly and painlessly, make it easier on everybody, including the poll workers. But you have to think, you know, I wonder what Jody Heiss thinks about this. You know, somebody that that's really running against Brad Raffensperger. Um, heavily for you know wanting to just change things as much as possible. <laughs> Look at how they've uh, thrown out of a lot of local election boards. Um, Lincoln County is um, going from, I believe, seven polling places to one. A lot of changes are happening, and and it seems like they're trying to make it harder to vote in some places, but here this is making it quicker, which is a good thing. But um, Catherine, what do you think the political implications of this might be? I mean, could some Republicans, voters that are really, uh, you know, pro, you know, Donald Trump overturning the election, could they possibly have this be more fuel to the fire to oppose Brad Raffensperger? Oh, I'm sure that there are some people that are opposed to any um, improvement. I mean, we we see that in our, you know, in our federal congressional um, voting, you know, that people want to restrict voting. So if this is going to speed up the process and make it easier or quicker, then of course there's going to be people who oppose it. I, I think it's um, ridiculous and uh, anti, honestly, I think it's anti-American to try to restrict voting, but there we have those people in our, Midst, and we just have to try to limit their influence. Yeah, Tim, have you heard any feedback from the other candidates of any of them running for Secretary of State? So far, I have not. Now, you know what I was just sitting here thinking? Perhaps they could turn this into some gigantic conspiracy thing, that Brad Raffensperger is part of a conspiracy to help Democratic voters and to hurt Republican voters, and it's all, it's all going to be fake and this and that and the other. But if they believe that this new system is real, <laughs> How is it that Jody Heiss, for instance, would use it as a campaign issue? I mean, how's he going to say, you folks that have been waiting in line for a long time, uh, this, this is a bad idea for you not to wait in line <laughs> for a long time. How, how is he going to frame that other, other than to say it's some kind of gigantic conspiracy? I don't get it. Well, I mean, to me, it kind of goes in with restricting mail-in voting, and I think of all the elections in the past, I don't know how many years, I think the primary I voted mail-in, just because that was kind of at the height of the pandemic, um, you know, I would go in person and early vote and at other times go day of. Um, and just we can't I don't hear know you, why David. I want to restrict that, but apparently that's you know, 
a thing now to, to restrict mail-in voting. So this, if you made it faster, I, I could see some people thinking, okay, we saw the lines but, in Metro but, Atlanta. Let's let's keep those lines as long as possible. I mean, why would you not want to give water to someone um, waiting in line, particularly if it's in the you know the but, summer primary election but, when it's hot but, and, and in Georgia it's probably still hot and but. Um, the November election, and but, we're straight just to keep people from trying but to at, But at the same time, Republicans vote in droves on election day itself. And a lot of their yeah. precincts are going to have waiting times, long lines. Some of them, they, yeah. they, I'm sure they don't wait no 8 to 11 hours like they did at some precincts in Atlanta, but it might have taken some of them an hour and now it's going to take them three minutes. You know, I don't care how Trumpy they are. They're going to like that. I keep saying, how can Jody Heiss seriously use this as an, an, an issue without making it into some sort of a conspiracy? That's the only angle yeah, I can see. Yeah, and he may make it a conspiracy. Use. And it's very inside baseball. Um, you know, and he may not. And he may not just – he could just a straight through line of the same old thing, you know, uh, Brad Raffensperger wouldn't just overturn the election, and that's all the conspiracy he needs to run on. But, you know, I just – I think this is kind of a good development. And what's so sad is if if it helps a lot of people in precincts that are overwhelmingly Republican vote faster and it makes it easier on those election workers, I say good because that's just good yeah. democracy. Uh, that's I mean, correct. It just – it shouldn't matter about how somebody's voting. Let everybody vote, and if, if your side doesn't win, because that's the will that's of the people. That's correct. That's the that's will of correct. the people. That's Have better correct. ideas next time. Yeah. Sure. It's very simple. Well, let's kind of talk about the next uh, piece in this. And I'm going to mention it through David Perdue's campaign, but it has already been proposed in Florida by Ron DeSantis, and that is an um, uh, election fraud police force um now of course <laughs> among others david ralston speaker of the house republicans already said if there's any suspicions of this you, the gbi already exists and they can handle this you don't need a new special force um and i'm sure it's the same case in florida there's probably the the um i guess it'd be the fbi but in that case it'd be the florida bureau of investigation not the federal although that's kind of confusing um I haven't been hunted down uh, for legal uh, reasons in Florida, so I'm not that familiar with it. But um, And so these crazy election forces, and people can see, you know, where could this go? Um, Catherine, uh, do you think this will resonate in any way, and I guess the Republican primary in particular? Oh, I think there's people who – who will, yes, I, I think it will resonate. I think there are people who think, who believe that there are, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, whatever, people out there trying to, you know, vote twice or uh, eliminate their vote or, you know, monkey with the voting system. We, we know that there's very little evidence of anything like that. We have a few examples of, in most cases, mistakes, uh, errors, not uh, not intentional uh, fraud. But there are people who who really do believe it, and I'm sure that there's 
they'll be like, yeah, that's what we need. We need a special force to make sure the fraud doesn't happen. Uh, yes, I think it will resonate. Yeah, uh, Tim, same question, but first I want to kind of tell, when I heard about this uh, special force, I kind of thought about the book Animal Farm where the uh, certain pigs, and I, and I forgot which snowball, I think he was pushed pushed out, but maybe Napoleon uh, had kind of turned the dogs into a special police force on the rest of the animals, and, and this kind of smacked to that. Um, do you think it's going to resonate? Yeah, well, that's because some pigs are created more equal than others, David. Uh, yeah, four uh, <laughs> legs good, two legs better. But look, look, election fraud in general is going to be a major issue for David Perdue against Governor Kemp. We know that. We know it's not going to work. That that issue's not going to work so much in the general election. But against Kemp, he thinks he's got a winner. So this election police units that he's pushing hard, this is just another attempt by Perdue to gin up backing from Trump supporters. He figures there's enough of them if they get angry enough to get out and vote to oust Governor Kemp in the primary. He got the idea, as you mentioned, from Ron DeSantis. The difference being what makes me so angry about this is I truly believe that Purdue knows this is nonsense. And right, that he exactly. will do anything to win, and if it is to literally lick the boots of Donald Trump, he will be more than happy to do that in order to revive his political career. Now, the question I have for you guys is, Will it work? Will he be able to propose preposterous things like this, silly things like this, and use these things to defeat an incumbent governor in his own party? That's the question you are to deal with now. Catherine, do you want to take it first? I've got an answer, but if you want to take it first, I'll let you. You go ahead, David. You go first. Well, here's – okay. I kind of think that this particular issue is pretty inside baseball, and the people that would really get excited are the, the you know hardcore conspiracy theorists that think Brian Kemp did Donald Trump wrong, and those people are already supporting, um, if not David Perdue, Vernon Jones, or poss- possibly Candace Taylor. They're not supporting uh, Brian Kemp, which I guess that's the first. Um, mission that David Perdue has is to get people not to support Brian Kemp, second, then to get him to support him. Um, so he doesn't gain any real ground there. Um, I'll tell you something interesting, and Tim, I know I shared it with you for another reason, so Catherine might not have got to see it, but the Jewish Times had a poll of the 14th Congressional District, very possibly the most conservative, or probably the second most conservative. Um, congressional district in the state, mainly of Republican voters, and it showed Brian Kemp still leading in the with a, with a little bit of cushion in the primary of those voters. And I wouldn't think he would do better in a lot of other districts that are less Republican than the 14th. So it seems like David Perdue has not got as much steam as we might have predicted. 
Um, Catherine, I'll let you go back and answer the initial question. I'm sorry. The initial question was? Uh, the one Tim proposed about, um, you know, how much David Perdue's attacks will work. Oh, um, well, I, I think that we we have good points that the people who are already supporting David Perdue and don't like Brian Kemp are already there. They don't need that. They don't need any additional ammunition. So I think that's a good point, and I, I tend to agree with it. Um, so it's probably a wash as far as uh, what what other whatever impact it might have on on that primary. Yeah. Now, Tim, you saw that poll. Does it seem yes, to it you that David Perdue is not in as good a shape as we might have predicted when he initially um, launched the primary challenge to Brian Kemp? Well, obviously not in North Georgia's rural areas. Now, North Georgia rural voters are a little bit different from South Georgia rural voters who, believe it or not, are even more toward President Trump, for instance, than North Georgia rural voters would be. Another thing that's not taken into account there, Metro Republican voters, if they stay with the party, would be far, far different from rural Republican voters. What are they going to do? Would would they be more interested in ousting the governor or keeping the governor? And would David Perdue appeal more to the metro Republican voters than he would to the rural Republican voters? So it's just a poll of one district, and you know I told you that that poll was skewed a little bit because they didn't get the correct percentages in in the individual counties. They They gave some counties too much weight and other counties not enough weight and it could have changed the results in a lot of ways yeah you're right katusa was over polled over sampled and here's the thing i think if david Perdue can't beat brian kemp in a katusa county then i'm not sure he can win statewide and i do think he'll do better making him warner robbins because that's where he's from and you may be right uh-huh. about some of those other further south areas but I think in some of the more populated areas, particularly Metro Atlanta among Republicans, I think Brian Kemp may do better than David Perdue, just like probably Casey because Cagle did better than Brian Kemp. Because the incumbent, the he's the incumbent. He's more of the, uh, you know, he's more of a, a, a rational policy person than David Perdue has been so far in this campaign, which is crazy mm-hmm. to think where we were four years ago when. Casey Cagle was far more of a rational policy person than Brian Kemp. That shows you where this party's moving. Um, well, and so still, I think it's just still, an interesting data point that we'll have to continue to follow. Yeah, but the final point is, what about Trump? What about Trump? What if he comes up here? What, what about all of that? Surely he I, still I, I has know. enough sway with Republican voters in this state to knock off <laughs> Say yeah. uh, see, here's what I think is the perfect storm for Georgia Democrats, Stacey Abrams, other p- people on the ticket is Brian Kemp pulls out this nomination, but at the same time, uh, Don- Donald Trump lays skin in the game and comes completely out against him. 
and a lot of those Republican voters just sit on their hands. They may vote in other races, but they don't even check a name for governor, and that's half of the vote. Every time one of those Republicans does that, you add two of those up. That's like a vote for Stacey Abrams. She keeps minus right. and off the column of Brian Kemp if, if 15% of Georgia Republicans just won't vote for Brian Kemp. And if Donald so Trump you came out you, hard enough, I could see it happening. So you see a you see a scenario that would be similar to the U.S. Senate runoffs, where obviously a lot of Trump supporters did not vote; they stayed at home. Exactly right, and and there they probably weren't as mad at um, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. They probably weren't really mad at all at them. They just kind of were mistrusting the process. Here, right. they might mistrust the process, and they'd be um, upset at Brian Kemp. Whereas I think a lot of people that might vote for Brian Kemp over David Perdue, I think then a lot of them have probably voted for David Perdue in one of the two times he ran for U.S. Senate. Voting for him would not be as big a stretch for them, and I don't think your Republican fall-off is nearly as much. So mm-hmm. that's my theory, and until somebody, you know, Gives me different proof. I'm sticking to it. Um, somebody might do that, and I'll change. But now let's finally leave Georgia and, and, and kind of get outside our comfort zone a little bit and talk about a race we've talked about, and that is that it's probably the most interesting Democratic primary in the nation, and that is the state of Pennsylvania. Multiple candidates are running, but a lot of the action seems to be with Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and congressional member Connor Lamb. Now, John Fetterman got in the race first. He seemed to have a lot of momentum. He has a very different and unique media style. And then Connor Lamb got in second, and it kind of seemed like he might have been late to the party, but all he's done in recent weeks is just rack up endorsement after endorsement, including, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, the mayor of Philadelphia, and a lot of yes. the labor unions. Tim, um, how big an impact are these endorsements going to make? Well, he does seem to be getting most of the uh, latter endorsements from various groups and politicians in Philadelphia. Uh, now, one major union that he scored there was the uh, Trade Union Council in Philadelphia. Uh, also, the, you mentioned the mayor of the Hispanic Caucus. Uh, also endorsed him. Um, there's no doubt these two are the numbers one and number two candidates in the five candidate field. They have run uh, the uh, in every poll that's been taken. The lieutenant governor's been first. Connor Lamb has been second. Uh, this is a this race. I think is a test of progressive strength against that of uh, moderate. Um, Fetterman's endorsements include the United Steelworkers, the United Food and Commercial Workers, uh, UFCW, uh, the normal PAC, which is uh, uh, marijuana legalization. And that's going to be a huge issue, I think, of all things in this race, in this primary race, at least, because uh, the lieutenant governor is a very strong supporter of legalization, while... uh, you know, Congressman Lamb uh, voted against his own record as voting against it uh, in Congress. Uh, 
it's going to be it's going to be interesting. One thing that may be helping Lamb here is more and more and more the bulk of Democratic strength is located in Philadelphia and its suburbs. Break through there, and you should have a hand up. Both of these men are from the Pittsburgh area. Uh, the lieutenant governor was a mayor out there, and, of course, Lamb, you know, won, what, four or five years ago in a huge upset there in a Republican-leaning district in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. So uh, the race will be Philadelphia. Watch that on election night and see who's breaking away there, and you know who's going to win. Yeah, and there I will say I think that some of the other, the right now third and fourth candidates, are from the eastern half of the state. And if they were able to hold a chunk, then um, that might then, I guess, help Fetterman if, if uh, uh, Lamb is making more inroads in the east. Um, Catherine, yeah. we had Mike Mickus on a few months ago. And at the time, he kind of, you know, talked up Connor Lamb a little more, talked down John Fetterman at that point. And I just mean the odds and of winning. And I will admit it, I kind of was a little skeptical. I'm not as skeptical as I was then. What's your take on this race? Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I think it's going to really come down to whether people are looking for someone different or someone the same. Are they are they looking mm. for a you know a maverick like Fetterman? I don't know if he's that far, but or are they really want to, do they really want to stay uh, with you know the status quo? Um, you know, someone they know, they know how he votes. As Tim said, I think uh, marijuana legalization, I think, is going to be a big topic for the next couple of um, election cycles. I think there's a lot of people who are anxious and eager, to both from an economic and commercial side as well as a um, – of a, as well as a civil right, not civil rights, but sort of rights um, perspective. I think it's an important issue for people. And uh, so I, I think it's going to be uh, an interesting race to watch. And I think it's going to have a lot of, like I said, I think there's going to be a lot of, I mean, not just there, but across the country. I think we're going to see a this this thing like throw the bums out or keep the bums in. You know, I, I think there's going to be some of that going on across the country. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll kind of see how this race is. And like I said, I mean, would y'all, either one of y'all, do y'all have another candidate in the race of better Democratic primary of the statewide level than uh, this one in Pennsylvania? No, and let me correct one thing I said. Lamb did not vote against legalization. What he voted against was decriminalizing um, marijuana. That, that That's that what he actually did. In Congress? Did. In yes. Congress? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yes, ma'am. The, 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 the federal laws are so complicated on this issue <laughs> that um, it's it's going to be tricky trying to work all that out once you know, more states uh, adopt some kind of um, legalization or decriminalization or whatever 
however we're going to call it. It's going to it's going to be tricky. Yeah. David, do you think this race may come down to the voters thinking to themselves, okay, which one of these guys is more electable in a general election? <laughs> It'd be my number one issue if I were um, if I were thinking about it because. I would be able to be fine with either one of them and probably the third and fourth candidate over Dr. Oz or whomever else might win the Republican primary. Uh, uh-huh. And so I think that is going to be a big thing. If one runs better in the general, that, that's going to be big. And, and, you know, Democratic voters, a lot of the ones that will really show up in, in primaries and runoffs, they become very um, astute thinking like this i mean you know there's a lot of reason that people put that that's why joe biden did so well in the primaries that people are like we just got to beat donald trump all 20 of these people are better than donald trump who can beat him um and so i think that's going to be a big factor Catherine, i won't leave you out uh do you see another race on a democratic primary statewide that's better than this one? Oh, i think Anymore? our uh our Senate race in Georgia is going to be really interesting. <laughs> well, well, Raphael Warnock should not have a primary comp- uh, competition. I'm talking oh, about I'm a sorry, primary, primary, Democratic I'm primary. Sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, Democratic primary. primary. No, I don't. No, I don't. I'm sorry. I, I yes. misheard you. And, and there are not that many primaries, uh, particularly on the Democratic side, a lot of places. So this is kind of a rarity. One other, you know, we're not going to actually talk about that primary, is the state of Wisconsin. But we're going to talk about something else to finish off the show and it's not quite as big an issue because of the results of the football game. But Aaron Rodgers had become increasingly political um, in recent weeks. Um, apparently lied about his vaccine status. And just this past weekend, um, you know, raised questions about if Joe Biden actually got 81 million votes in the last election. Now, he's a very popular sports figure because um, he – will have good games at quarterbacking, didn't have a really good one yesterday, and they lost, but he's still a popular figure in Wisconsin. Now, this would assume he doesn't leave and he stays with the Packers and keeps quarterbacking and stays a sports hero in state. Um, could he or any other, you know, athlete that's currently playing that has, you know, pretty strong political views – how much impact do you think they can have, Tim, in the political climate, particularly a state like Wisconsin that's pretty evenly divided right now? Well, I don't know. Uh, you you would think, well, maybe since he's so famous, maybe. On the other hand, when it boils down to it, he's one guy with an opinion. Uh, I, I'm I'm the I'm kind of thinking it probably is not going to have much of an impact. Fox did a large segment on him in pregame; they didn't even mention it. Um, everyone knows by now that he's anti-vax, and something else has happened since he gave that interview with ESPN. You know what it is? Novak Djokovic, uh, and you could just sense. Everybody, any sports fan all over the country was saying good for Australia. Even in this country, they, they were saying, well, good for Australia. These these overpaid bums think they can uh, break the rules when the rest of us have to follow the rules. So I'm not so sure that Aaron Rodgers, uh, what he said and done, 
is as popular as uh, many people think, not only with his teammates, but with the public at large. Yeah. Um, Catherine, um, we're going to discuss the failed Jeopardy host. And in many ways, he seems like he's taken a lot of these <laughs> positions since Jeopardy said, mm, you're fine, but not you, somebody else. Oh, he was one of that Jeopardy hosts? Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was yeah. talk that oh, he got that. he would retire from football and become the Jeopardy host. And instead, he's gone on the uh, anti-information tour. <laughs> well, here's what I think about um, – about sports figures and actually any famous person who talks about politics and tries to influence them. I think if they're articulate and smart and, you know, pick their uh, battles, you know, pick their issues that they think are important and, speak out eloquently about them, I think they can have an impact. If they, and I'm not, this is, I have not, I don't know anything about this guy. I don't know anything about this guy. But so, but often I think we have celebrities and sports figures and famous people who when they do speak out, they don't sound like they know what they're talking about or they um, kick on issues that are not really that important to people. So I think that is what makes a celebrity or famous person or sports figure um, influential is if they are articulate and eloquent and know what they're talking about. Yeah, I'll boil it down to this, and if people are, it's uh, you know too old a frame of reference, look it up. Be Jack Kemp or uh, Bill Bradley. They were both um, very good at sports and then got into politics and, and did their homework. They weren't just sizzle. They were steak. One was very progressive. Right. One was very conservative. But they came from a, a formulated, educated, grounded perspective when they talked about politics. So follow their role model, not some other folks that you might see running for U.S. Senate in Georgia or others. Um, but I <laughs> want to thank again uh, John Delavolte for coming on to talk about a fight. And then next week we're going to have a new guest to the show from uh, Split One Ticket and also Election Twitter, um, Lakshaya Jane. And if I said his name incorrect, we'll get it corrected next week. But uh, Mr. Jane is going to come on and talk about a lot of different election issues. He's actually a a uh, computer software engineer that does a lot of election analysis and modeling. And so he's going to have a lot of, you know, trends and, and whatnot uh, where our country is headed. So we're looking forward to that till next week. And until then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a